0: Greetings, most excellent Theophilus. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome, welcome. I mean, hey, I should be—I exp- should not act like um, the audience has seen every single episode from the beginning. So, welcome to the show where I, Stephen Stowell, talk to you, most excellent Theophilus, about what's happening. And I talk to you about. What's happening in the light of scripture and theology? I do apologetic responses to the woes of the world, responses to opposing religions that contradict what saith the word. Also, a reminder for people that for this new year, we're allowing people to submit, we, I, (laughs) people can submit uh, voice clips of them recreating the intro. Um, and I can put that in as the opening, you know, (laughs) the good old, hello, you know, or not hello, that's a different thing in my brain, um, the greetings. But anyways, without further ado, we have a special, special guest today. All right. Thanks again to Agent for coming on. And now it's that time where we read the words of Christ from Matthew 5, 3-12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go in the peace and gracious love of our Lord and Savior.
1: Alright, so today uh, what I wanted to discuss is I wanted to discuss some universal atonement proof text that the Arminian or say the provisionists or anyone like that would try to use and um I'm thinking about discussing and this is what I plan to do John three sixteen one John two two or sorry first John two two that really annoys some people uh first Timothy two four second peter three 9, uh, 2 corinthians five fourteen through nineteen and also one corinthians fifteen twenty two that's our goal for today and I'm a little I'm a little annoyed you put 2 Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. <laughs> I was thinking that, too. Yeah. Um, Alright. Um. Well, where do we start? I think at the most commonly used proof text for Arminians, probably. Well, you should probably, you should probably start with introducing yourself to the audience. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, I am agent, and I kind of just sit around on Discord, and I also do school, and I have an interest in... Biblically exegeting texts, not depending on my own tradition, and getting down to what the text actually means. Um, I'm Dutch Reformed. Uh, I'm a Calvinist, and that pretty much explains why we're here today. Because um, I find this man, this man is, this man is doing at his age what I was
0: nowhere near capable of doing, at his age. <laughs> right. This man is
1: wise far beyond his years. <laughs> <laughs> Let no man despise you for your youth, as was said to Timothy. Um all right well let's start at John 3:16. Um I'm sure everyone knows this on their head which is probably why it's one of the easiestly <laughs> used proof text against um Calvinism by Arminians because when you've read a passage so much you're used to whatever your preacher or how you've always read it or um you know I find that even a lot of times people don't know what's going on they just hear John 3:16 quoted and then they're like, Calvinism, disproven, done. And um, mm-hmm. that's not the way that we should treat any text. We should be rather fair to the text because, well, that's exegesis. So um, I think that we should just read the passage in full first. Um, would you like to take a shot at John 3 or would you like me to go for it? Yeah,
0: sure. How uh, how deeply would you like me to uh, <laughs> read this, for example? Because i got the Greek, I've got an Ninja
1: in front of me. Nah, just go straight English. It doesn't matter.
0: Straight English. Okay. Start from John. Well, of course, everybody. One. I mean, of uh, John three. Wait, what? John three one. All the way through, like sixteen or seventeen. Oh, you mean the entire? Past? Yeah. You mean the entire? Past? Okay, okay, okay. I we we're just focusing in on the verse. Gotcha.
1: Well. Um, i mean we could do that first um for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world would be saved through him and then we'll get on to more but um i think better than just reading that alone when we're reading a passage we should always get the context in there because that's always you know reading the passage is the first thing you can do to understand what the passage is actually saying i think that's pretty straightforward right certainly all right, take a shot at it. Now
0: there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do this. Oh, excuse me. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." Jesus answered and said to him, "Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Nicodemus said to him. How can a man be born when he is old he cannot enter into uh, a second time into his mother's womb and be born can he and Jesus answered truly truly I say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit do not be amazed that I said to you we must be born again you must be born again sorry. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe even if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever so believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. He, has because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Uh like me to keep on reading to the end of the passage or you could go all the way to verse 21 okay uh this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but he who practices truth and comes to the light uh, sorry, but he who practices truth comes to the lights, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been
1: wrought in God nice alright, no I'm glad um, so there's, we'll just quickly go through it, kind of just skim through, we don't have to go through everything, um, but basically we have a man of the Pharisees, his name is Nicodemus he is a member of the Pharisees, it says, the text says he was a ruler of the Jews and he comes and he, see, he, he tries to see Jesus at the night and he says, uh, referring to the Pharisees, he says, "Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them." And then Jesus is like, he he kind of consumes and stretches mind. He says, uh, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Now, Nicodemus doesn't know what this means at all. In fact, he interprets what's being said, which Jesus says, "You have to be born of above to be see, seeing the kingdom of God." He says well how can a man be born when he is old can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born and then jesus just repeats his point um unless you're born of the water and the spirit you can't enter the kingdom of god and he says that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit um and he tells him not to marvel like he does in other texts for example like john 6 he'll, he'll tell people not to marvel and he'll just re-emphasize his teaching he's telling him no you you must be born again um he says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is, so is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he's saying, the Spirit goes where it pleases. And that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. And you can't enter that kingdom of, the, kingdom of God unless the Spirit of God is indwelt you. And he says, the Spirit goes where it goes. And it comes from where it comes from, and it, you don't know where that comes from. And you don't know why it goes where it goes, but it sure goes there. And he says, so is it with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if I've ever heard something that sounds so close to Calvinism, that God chooses whom he wishes to indwell and regenerate, that would sure sound like it, wouldn't it? And that's the kind of thing that Nicodemus says. And then Nicodemus is still confused, and he says, how can these things be? And then Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Sorry, and yet you do not understand these things? He says, well, we, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness, but you do not receive us. In our testimony um and we tell you earthly things and you do not believe he says if i told have told you earthly things and you do not believe how can you believe if i tell you heavenly things and then you know we have a great scope directly after this he says no one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven the son of man and then he makes this perfect reference to the old testament to numbers nine and um i'm not going to read numbers nine here i I, I suggest uh, theophilus to go and kind of listen Or or maybe read Numbers 9 and see what that's about. Um, I'll try to summarize it here if you don't feel like doing that. Um, In Numbers 9, there are people who are blaspheming. Uh, First of all, this is in Numbers, so this is when the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And they are there in the wilderness, and they kind of blaspheme God and Moses, and they say, have you brought us out to this desert, basically? brought us out into the wilderness i don't necessarily know if it's a desert but have you brought us out to the wilderness to die and they basically god gets pretty mad at them because they're blaspheming uh god's name and mocking moses so god sends on them poisonous serpents that text says fiery serpents and these fiery serpents go and they bite people and people start dying right and uh they they kind of come back to him, and they regret what they did. And they said, surely we have we have blasphemed God and, and all of these things. And what Moses says to them, sorry, what God says to Moses whenever th- these people start realizing what they did was wrong, was he says, look, gra- uh, get a fiery serpent. Um, this was actually a bronze serpent, so it was made of bronze. And put it up on a pole, and whoever looks at this uh, bronze serpent on the pole they will live and that's exactly what happened those people who had been bitten by the fiery serpents if they looked to that brown serpent they would survive and Jesus applies this to himself and he says and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness obviously talking about lifting it up on a pole so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life so his point is everyone just as everyone who looked on the, the, the sun uh Sorry, just as everyone looked on the serpent and was saved, so everyone who looks on the Son in belief will have eternal life. And that's the point here. And then he goes on, and he furthers from this analogy, he says, Either John commentating on this, or Jesus continuing, he says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, let's, let's kind of stop here, because the Arminian would be saying... Well this proves Christ dies for everyone in existence and anyone who chooses to believe on the condition that they believe it'll be applied to them and then they'll be saved. And um would you like to start off on that or would you like me to start?
0: Yeah, I'd like to uh, walk through this um from the the Greek of the interlinear. Um it's it's hōtos gar agapē san os, ton kosmon For thus God, uh, for thus loved God the world, or for in this way God loved the world. Hoste ton huion, that the Son, ton monogene, the only begotten, although um, there's reasons to not think that monogene is referring necessarily to that, rather the idea of uniqueness, mono, only, gene, kind of like a genesis, genesis, genetics, mm-hmm. so the only kind, the, right. or unique one of a kind, uh, such as in, th- this This is drawing back to John one eighteen. the, uh, no one has seen God the Father at any time, but the monogenes to us, or who
1: he at the Father's side, has made him known. Right, the only begotten God, or just a unique God, kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So,
0: so, so you have a good hmm. point there. Keep going. Yeah. So Tamaragane he gave. So that he gave, the the unique sum. Kina pas ha ice auton me Apolete yeah, al eke zoen ionion uh, zoen kina kina clause in order that. Pas ha This is the thing that translations normally don't actually reflect. In a sense, they reflect the words fine, but the sentiment that's taken by people does not actually reflect the Greek. Pas ha All the believing. Right. Semantically, wh- whosoever, I think the Arminian or the Provisionist or the whoever, mm-hmm. incorporates into that the notion of, well, it's anyone. It, this is a free offer. Anyone can believe. Mm-hmm. Whosoever will believe. Right. But it's, it's merely denoting that all, do want all the believe. Right. Yeah, no, that's which, a good point. It simply delimits that the category of people being saved here are those who believe, everyone who does believe. So everyone who's believing in him, Aisatan, in him, may apolete, not should perish al eke zoe
1: but should have life eternal. Right. Yeah, and it goes Hugar Galpestelin, astan huion sothe, That is, um, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's verse 17. And, um, you know, whenever we're talking about whoever believes in him, we'll, we'll get to the idea of the world, because there's two objections that the Armenian will raise on this passage. So like it says world, that means everyone in existence. That would be their first claim. The second would be, here, um, everyone has the ability to believe because it says that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And um, my response to first the second claim, we'll, we'll tackle the first one in a second. That's why I quoted verse 17, because I'm coming for it, don't worry. Uh, I would say this text is not talking about any ability or capacity on part of man to believe, as the Arminian or Provisionist is presupposing. But rather, the text merely states that everyone who does come to believe will not perish, may I pollute, but um, they, they will not perish if they believe. But it says nothing about the ability of anyone to believe. Um, I can give an example just using whosoever or whoever. Um, if I say whosoever or or let's just go with whoever. Whoever comes to my house will get a cupcake. Um, this says nothing about the ability of anyone to get to my house. Someone, I, I could say whoever comes to my house. Uh, well, I mean, let's just go with this. This says nothing about whether, imagine there's a disabled person across the street, and he needs assistance to get to my house, and no one's gonna assist him. This says nothing about whether Joe across the street can come to my house. He may have no legs and require assistance to be able to get to place to place. He may not have that physical ability to come to my house, but the statement is not any less true that whoever comes to my house will get a cupcake. Um, and as, as was already pointed out by, um, Jedi here, um... He kind of pointed for, out for context. Yeah. For for context, Theophilus, that's my name on Discord, Lone Jedi. <laughs> oh my bad, I didn't know. Um, oh no, that's crazy. Yeah. I'll just call him. Uh, wh- what would you, you can rather, me Steven whatever. or Jedi? It's I I go by
0: both in in these circles. I mean, everybody here knows me first as Steven, so I I don't know. It that's that's Steven. what I
1: usually rather doing. I just figured that, that you went by Jedi on here, but no big deal. Um, as Stephen pointed out, the Greek text kind of refutes this idea that whosoever, or whoever, speaks of the ability to believe on behalf of anyone. Rather, it merely speaks that those who meet the condition of belief will not perish but have eternal life. It says no one, it says no one that believes in the Son will perish. And that's kind of the point there. It's no one in this particular category will perish. It doesn't say anything about any ability on part of men to enter a category. Um he mentioned it's houtos gargapesen astan kosmon hosta ton huion tan managene erokin um in this way god loved the world that god gave his only son hena pasop on, iso tone may polite alarge zoin eonion that all the believing in him may not perish but have eternal life um pasop just means all the believing and is translated whoever as already demonstrated this is kind of just saying that all who meet a certain condition which is belief in this sense will be saved it says nothing about how someone got to meet that condition or who can believe um mm-hmm. so we kind of dealt with the second presupposition that they would say look this refutes calvinism it's just not present uh, but if we kind of cover some we have to cover the other part because this is going to be their biggest objection um what does world mean here and um you know, I have some, I have a whole list of here of uses of cosmos throughout scripture. Um, I'm just going to name off a few. Um, I would say, first of all, cosmos, which is just the word for world in Greek, um, it does not mean, it doesn't always mean everyone in existence. There are many uses of this word in John and the rest of the New Testament, and I'll, I'll just give some. Um, cosmos, which is world, so just remember when I say cosmos, I mean world. Um, the word cosmos is used to represent the universe in Acts 17, 24. It's used to represent the earth in John 13, 1, Matthew 4, 8. Um, sorry, and Matthew 4, 8. In um, John fifteen eighteen, 18, um, it represents humanity minus believers. So you were already getting to a particular group. He says, um, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world; therefore, the world hates you. This is clearly representing he, he chose us out of the people who did not believe. It's humanity minus believers. He says you're not of the world. And uh, you know, I I see another good text to to show for particular uh, particular aspect of the word cosmos uh, would be in Romans 11:12, and it says this. Basically, he's talking about the. The Gentiles grafted in. Um, this is after Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, and um, by the end of Romans 9, he's dealing with the topic of, um, did, those, did, did those Gentiles that before did not believe, did they achieve righteousness, but the Jews didn't? And then he goes into the fact, well, the Jews, they, they stumbled over the stumbling stone laid in Zion. Um, they did that. And the stumbling stone in Zion was Christ crucified. They were depending on works of the law for salvation. Like many of our Mormon, or Catholic friends, anything like that, they depend on their works for salvation, and that's the stumbling stone laid up in Zion. That the cross and the resurrection can make someone righteous, and that's all. That's the stumbling stone laid up in Zion. And then it goes into Romans 10, and by the time we get to Romans 11, he talks again on that topic of the Gentiles achieving righteousness while some of the Jews are not able to make it in there. And, um, he's, he asks in Romans 11, uh, 11, he says, Romans 11, 11, I didn't repeat 11 twice, only because it's Romans 11, 11, but, um, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the cosmos, that's the world, And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full exclusion mean? Sorry, inclusion mean. Here, it specifically says that through this trespass by the Jews, that salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Then he says, now if their trespass, talking about Israel, means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is talking about it means riches for the world, that they, they they trespassed the law of God and they did not obey the gospel because this meant riches for the Gentiles. Here, world here is being used to reference Gentiles only. This is pretty clear from reading the passage. Now, I would say this clearly we have individuality in the word cosmos. Sometimes uh, let's just name off you know the last use, which I think is the use in John three sixteen. I think it's the elect dispersed uh, throughout all nations. Um. I think it's used this way in John 1.29, John 3.16, John 6.33, John uh, 6.51, and 1 John uh, 2.2, which we'll actually get to. Um, I can just give a a quick example to kind of demonstrate this early on. Um, Because the Arminian, if they're going to consistently say that world always means everyone in existence, they have to say that everyone's saved. Now I will demonstrate why. Um, John 6, this is with the the, the, feeding, the feeding of the 5,000. And, um, you know, this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and we have people who they come and they are... Uh, Jesus goes... Or, or the disciples go on a boat all the way to the other side of the sea um, after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus doesn't go with them. And, um, you know, these people who had eaten the bread... They saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples. Uh, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's what the text says. So they went to Capernaum looking for Jesus because they know that they crossed the sea. And they actually found him on the other side. And then he said, uh, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Because they don't know how he got there. And then um, Jesus answers him this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that... in Look, I'm going to... Emphasize this, remember this later, for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set a seal. So, the point of these people was that they wanted some food, that's why they came to Jesus. Now, why am I even talking about John 6? It's three chapters later. Well, if you keep reading on, we actually get a use of world that refers to just the believers, or just the elect. Now let's read on. I can kind of demonstrate this. Uh, This is directly after, remember I'm just quoting the text. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, remember once again, they're trying to get food from him. This is why they're coming over. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Um, he actually, it says he gives life to the world. Does God give eternal life to all of the world? Is that what the Arminian would be saying? And i also mentioned uh john six fifty one um which kind of solidifies this point with the same premise about the bread representing eternal life and jesus flesh being the bread and his blood being the wine um he says and and, and john um he says john six fifty one um He's going to say something that's going to sound like he's saying that salvation is for every single person in existence, and that they're all going to be saved if you interpret world to mean everyone in existence. And it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down to heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Remember, if they eat of this bread, they're going to have eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So God is giving these people the bread of life to eat. Not the people whom he's denying, salvation. Um, Whoever he gives this life to, they're going to be saved. If the Arminian means to say that world cosmos always references everyone in existence, it doesn't make any sense because one, he says that he will give life to the world talking about eternal life and then he says um he says if anyone eats of this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of this world is my flesh would the armenians say every single person in existence is getting eternal life if not then the world sometimes refers to the elect in all nations the believers in all nations um and that's the kind of use that i think is being used in john three sixteen. for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life now why does he say this why is he saying this to reference all the elect and all the world? Well, because he's talking to a literal Pharisee. He's talking to Nicodemus the Pharisee who thinks that only the Jews will be saved, that you will be saved by your bloodline, and only Jews can be saved. This is pretty explicit if you read the Gospel of Luke, um, that the Pharisees did teach this. And remember, he's a member of the Pharisees. He's not just any random person. So he makes a point. He uses the serpent in the wilderness um, and the death of the sun, and he says, you know... Um, god's gonna lift up his son talking about on the cross that all the believing in him now we'll get to why that's important that it's all the believing in him that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world here we have Tan Kazman. he loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for god did not send His son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world would be saved through him Okay? Or might be saved. Doesn't matter, we'll get to that. Um, you know, what, what's funny about this is, this is the exact thing that you would expect Jesus to say to the Pharisees if he was saying that not just the Jews will be saved, but also people from the nations that are Gentile will be saved. This is the message that he's trying to convey. This is the perfect way to convey it. Now, we have more reasons to think world here means the elect person on nations in an organic way. Um, It is likely that the use of world here is referring to the idea that Jesus is not dying for Jews only, but for people all around the world, namely the elect. In the first part of John 3.16, there is emphasis on the Greek in poshapastuon, that's all the believing, not perishing, but having eternal life. This is unusual in the text when referring to a group of people who meet the conditions. Typically, if you just want to say, all who meet a certain condition will reach salvation, you would just say, uh, you would just say, um, God gave his only son that the believing in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, there's an emphasis on pas here in the Greek, that all the believing will receive eternal life. Not just Jews, all the believing. Now, only the elect can believe. This is a consistent testimony of scripture. We're not going to perfectly get into this right now. Um, but pos apos, is just saying all that believe will have eternal life. The construction of, of like, pos followed by... Um, hapastuon. This construction is only used seven times in scripture, as opposed to the eleven times where hapastuon is used. Um, And to quote James White on this, so the point is, the reason it's translated whoever Oh, sorry, whosoever, is that whoever believes, there's no world. There's no word here that is talking about everyone, whosoever has a certain capacity, that's not there, the literal rendering is every believing one, but the point is, there is no such thing as a true believer who will not find Jesus to be a perfect savior, it's not addressing who can believe, it's not addressing who has true faith, end quote, and that's from uh, Answering Objections to Calvinism, Apologia Studios, um, that was whenever James White was talking up there. So, as James White says, the point of the text is to say that there is not a single true believer who will not inherit eternal life. All of them will not perish, not just some. And this is, as we've already talked about, and you can see this in Luke 3, 7-9, they thought they were being saved for being Jews, the Pharisees. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee. This tells us when Jesus says he is dying for the world, he is not just dying for no reason when he could say, like, I'm sorry, he's not just saying it for no reason that he could, like, you know, he could say the electos. Um, the, the, the elect, he could say the chosen, but rather, he's making the emphasis to Nicodemus um, that people of all nations are going to be atoned for by Christ, not just Jews. And um, finally, for my final blow, I'm going to make a quick argument for limited atonement based on the very text that Arminians would try to use to deny God's effectual atonement. Um, if you read verse 17, um, it's uh, Ugar Agape Stellin, um i just butchered that haothe huion um i sorry iston kosman hena cline ton kosmon sothe ha dio and the idea um i'll just read that in english for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him the idea here is god is not sending his son forth into the world it literally says he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but Once again, we have what's called a henna clause, or a purpose clause, but in order that, the world might be saved through him. Now, you know, before we get to the crux of the argument, we need to talk a little bit about Greek. Um, Now, don't turn down the headphones, Theophilus. Um, Actually listen to what's being said here. I think it'll be important, and that you will value from learning from this. Um, Here, we have what's called a henna, or a purpose clause in the Greek language. Um, What that is, is it's the way that you demonstrate purpose. Um, For example, in Spanish, you have para plus an infinitive whenever you're trying to demonstrate the purpose um, of doing something. There's a similar thing in Greek, and it's called a purpose clause or a henna clause. The henna clause is demonstrating the reason as to why one does something. So first, you have a negative purpose clause, for God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world. But he did it for this reason. Now, he's going to construct this like this ha So, he's doing this in order to, this is the word hina, so this is where you want to pay attention, hina is the word that is translated in order that. This is how you demonstrate potentiality. You complete the purpose clause by adding a subjunctive at the end of it. And a subjunctive is the way that we say, like, might or may in the English language. Like, if I say, um... Test me out here, Stephen. Um, If I say that I am... I might go to the store later, what are you thinking that might means? You might, but you might not. Right. And that's the general way that the subjunctive mood is used in um, the New Testament and throughout just the Greek language and Koine Greek. And it's different in the context of a purpose clause. It's not denoting potentiality but rather the henna clause is meant to demonstrate a genuine a genuine intent that someone has it's more of like I've s- i said i intend to go to the store in order to buy in order that i may buy some fruits now in the greek language when you have the subjunctive um in this context and a purpose clause it's not to denote potentiality it's just a funny thing that the greek language does that doesn't it's what we call really just kind of like an idiom in uh, our language It would be something that only works in this language, or you could say it'd be an idiomatic phrase in um, Spanish, for example, and you wouldn't be able to translate that perfectly to English. But the idea can be translated. And um, this is kind of the same concept here. In a henna clause, you have henna followed by a subjunctive, and the subjunctive does not denote potentiality, but rather purpose. So another way, for example, I I recommend that people who are wondering about this should look up the henna clause, Um, should we translate it uh, to might, by Bill Mounts. Um, It's not going to be that as the exact title, but it should pop up if you search that up. And Bill Mounts, he is a Greek scholar. Um, He's actually a pretty, pretty credible Greek scholar. And um, he kind of talks about how he recommends in the purpose clause that people should stop translating uh, the end of the purpose clause in the subjunctive as might, but rather to would. Because might to an English reader, as, as Jedi showed us whenever I used that English phrase, um, it seems like I'm saying that I might do something I might not. That's not the way it's used in the context of a purpose clause. So he recommends, Bill Mounts, in the context of a purpose clause, Remember, in the context, not always, but in the context of a purpose clause, if it's in a purpose clause. That the subjunctive should be translated to would instead of might. So this is how it would sound otherwise. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through him. The idea is that it's a genuine intent of God sending the son into the world to save the world. Now, I think John Owen—I'm uh, not going to go too long-winded on this, but I'll just make a quick argument— John Owen, and A H- Death of Death and the Death of Christ, um, he has an entire, the first book in chapter 1, um, his first chapter is the purpose of the death of Christ. Uh, he says, By the purpose of the death of Christ, we generally mean, first, what his Father and he intended by it, and secondly, what was effectually fulfilled and accomplished by it. Concerning either, we may take a brief view of the expression used by the Holy Spirit. Um, first, do you want to know the purpose for and in- intent with which Christ came into the world? Let us ask the one who knew his mind and all the secrets of his father's heart. He will tell us that the Son came to save what was lost. That's Matthew eleven, eighteen. To recover and save poor lost souls. Um, that was his intent and his design, as it is again asserted in Luke nineteen ten. So, you know, write this down maybe if you're looking to see what God's intent in salvation was. We can clearly see that his purpose in in John 3.17 is not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. Um, You can see this in Matthew 18.11 and in Luke 19.10, where it says that he came to save the lost, and that he came uh, to save what was lost, and he came to save the lost um, in those two passages. And, you know, Paul kind of asserts this, we, we can ask the apostles, this is what uh, he continues, John Ellen, let's say, he says, ask also his apostles who know his mind and they will tell you the same. So Paul says in 1 Timothy, or sorry, 1 Timothy 1.15, quote, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus, sorry that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, if you ask who these sinners are, sinners are towards whom he has this gracious intent and purpose, Christ tells you in Matthew Twenty twenty-eight, that he came to quote give his life a ransom for many In other places these sinners are called believers as distinguished from the world for he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of god and our father that's galatians 1 4 that was the will and intention of god that christ would give himself for us that we might be saved being separated from the world they are his church um let's just keep going on um um t- quickly Timothy 2:14 says he gave uh 1st Timothy 2:14 says he gave himself for us that he would redeem us from all iniquity so his intent in the death of Christ of giving the son in a sacrificial way was to save and here it says to save the world and secondly in other passages it just says to save the lost or to redeem this is the genuine intention so next Owen makes the argument Um, Again, this is from A Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. He makes the argument that whenever you intend something, you either have the right means to... So so we would say, first of all, um, whenever you desire to accomplish something, this is called your desired ends. The ends is just the result that you're looking for. Um, Or sorry, the desired ends would be the desired result you're looking for. The ends in anything would be the result. Um, And he says that people, they have... Either the right means to accomplish something or imperfect means to accomplish something. That's what the next chapter is about. Um, he goes on to say, this is in chapter 2, it's the general nature of any purpose. He makes the distinction uh, of ends and means, and he says um, basically that, People have the right means to get to something or the wrong means. For example, he says, So it was, when Adam was enticed by his desire to be like God, he made that his aim. To effect it, he ate the forbidden fruit. That contracted a guilt that he did not aim at. But when the agent acts rightly as he should, and he aims at a proper end according to his condition, and he works by means that are fit and suitable to the end proposed, then the end of the work and the intent of the workman are one and the same. So basically what he's saying there is people have good moral ends and wrong moral ends and if you have the right end i'm sorry if i meant means not ends so if some people have bad means to get to a goal and some people have good means to get to a goal whether it be morally or just sufficiently now the right means um to say get to a goal um would be if like let's say my intent was to drink water and i'm saying i'm gonna go downstairs i'm gonna get a water bottle i'm gonna pick it up and I'm going to open my mouth and swallow some water. Alright, sorry about that. Um, We had a little bit of an interruption there, so this isn't going to flow the best whenever I go back and edit it, or Steven goes back and ed- edits it, but um, nature calls, sometimes at the worst times, um, as Jedi DM'd me. <laughs> um, yeah, but basically what I was saying was, um, I don't know if you were there for all of it, Stephen, but... Basically, I was saying that results are dependent on the things that are done to achieve those results. Um, In other words, ends, which is results, are achieved by means. Whenever someone intends for a certain result to happen, they need to aim at the best means to achieve it. And then I I, I read John Owen on this, and he gave the example of Adam wanting to be God, and he had the wrong or immoral means of achieving that action which was eating the forbidden fruit, and then he got something he didn't aim at, because he had the imperfect means, right, Um, and it was not a desirable goal. Now, what I was, why, why I read that, and why I was building off of Owen there, was to say, God's intent, genuinely, as we've already demonstrated, is to save and to redeem, by sending his son forth to die. Now, If world means everyone then that means that god genuinely intended to save everyone in existence and not to condemn anyone in existence and what i was saying was um if john 3 17 says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world would be saved through him remember purpose clause not denoting potentiality um here we see what the son was sent for and what the son was not sent for he was sent to condemn sorry he was not sent to condemn the world he was sent to save the world Um, the question is then asked, did God fail to save the world by sending his son into it? Um, the text does not say that his purpose was to make it possible for someone to be saved, but instead it was to save people. Whatever the world is, his intent was to save it. If world means everyone in existence, then this means either Christ—this is, like, Owen builds this entire argument. I used to do it before I even know uh, Owen ever did it. Um, then this means—so if world means everyone in existence, then this means that either Christ failed to save everyone in existence, which means, um— that um he failed his purpose or that universal salvation is true. And um Owen makes that exact argument. And he says this. Um let me quickly scroll down. Uh sorry I'm taking so long on this one verse. I think it's very necessary. That's fine. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to get to the part where Owen makes that argument. feel like I'm just skipping in, I don't know where it is. So it's after he says this... Um. Oh, here it is, I think, is it? <laughs> this is why you never come unprepared sometimes, do you? It's not a good idea. Okay, time to go for the search feature now and just say um there it is found it' this is the the beauty of control f am i right okay mm-hmm. <laughs> um now the masters of this op- this is i'm quoting Owen by the way now the masters of this opinion that is um universal atonement Now, the masters of this opinion see full well that if that is the end of the death of Christ, and the effects mentioned are the immediate fruits and products of that death, then one of two things will necessarily follow. Either first, that God and Christ failed to accomplish what they attended, the death of Christ was not a fit means to attain that end, right, they did the wrong things, basically, To assert assert such a thing seems blasphemously injurious to the wisdom, power, and perfection of God, and it is likewise derogatory to the worth and value of the death of Christ, or else second—this is the second thing, so either he failed, or else second— that all men, the entire posterity of Adam, must be saved, purged, sanctified, and glorified. Surely, these advocates of universal redemption will not maintain that, because the scripture and the woeful experiments—sorry, the woeful experience of millions—will not allow that. Therefore, to cast a tolerable color on their persuasion, they must deny that God or His Son had any such absolute mean, sorry, aim or end in the death or bloodshedding of Christ. They must deny that any such thing was immediately procured and purchased by his death, as we recounted before. Instead, they assert that God intended nothing, nor was anything affected by Christ. No immediate benefit arises to anyone by his death except what is common to all and every soul, no matter how cursedly unbelieving here and eternally damned hereafter. No benefit arises until an act of faith not procured for them by Christ distinguishes them from others. Uh, for For if it was procured before them... By Christ, why would they not all have it alike? This seems to me, sorry, now this seems to me to enervate the value, virtue, fruits, and effects of dissatisfaction in the death of Christ. Besides that, it serves as a basis and foundation for the dangerous, uncomfortable, and erroneous persuasion. Um, I agree with him perfectly. I'm going to make my own, I'm going to say this in my own words, though. If world means everyone in existence, and this means that either Christ failed to save everyone in existence, which is, was his genuine purpose or that universal salvation is true. We can demonstrate one of these two options to be wrong based on the context. The next verse states, Whoever believes in him, this is John, uh, I'm going to read John 3.18-21. through 21. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the, in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The next verses indicate that there are non-saved condemned people, namely those who do not come to believe in the name of the only Son of God. We can then conclude that the only viable option for the Arminian to claim is that, quote, God genuinely tried to save all men in existence, but man's free will prevented him from succeeding, end quote. God merely tried to save all men by sending his Son, but he could not do so. Such a proposal is blasphemy. And I wrote that before I ever read Owen. Such a proposal is blasphemy. Nebuchadnezzar knew the ability of the Most High to accomplish what he wants when he states in Daniel four thirty-five uh sorry, Daniel four thirty-four through thirty-five, quote, At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we can gain three things here. He does according to his will, none can stop him, that's, that's what he means when he says none can stay his hand, and none can question him it then follows that the only non-blasphemous interpretation of this text would be to say that the world refers to the elect people dispersed around all throughout like ah sorry i'm stuttering um it then follows that the only non-blasphemous interpretation of this text would be to say that world refers to the elect people dispersed all throughout the earth otherwise god did in fact fail his purpose which is blasphemy to say that he failed to do what he intended to do Or, God is contradicting himself and is arguing universalism, then says that universalism is false, which would make God a liar, which is also blasphemy to say. So no matter what, the Arminian has to maintain blasphemy or deny scripture. Otherwise, if you don't take the interpretation that we take, that world refers to the elect dispersed throughout all the earth, otherwise, God did in fact fail his purpose, or like I said, God is contradicting himself. Such an imputation or attribution to the Most High is to be denied. And, you know, I'll, I'm going to go with uh, John Owen on this. He says, Therefore, by the Lord's assistance, I will declare what the Scripture holds out related to both the assertion they make and what they present to prove it. I desire the Lord to lead us into all truth by his Spirit, to give us understanding in all things, and if anyone thinks otherwise, to reveal to reveal that sorry to reveal that to him also. Now, I think we've dealt with uh, John 3:16 in detail, taking almost 50 minutes to do that. Um, I think it's about time that we cover First John 2:2. Um, I'll quickly read it unless uh, actually, Jedi, you should step in and do a little bit. First John 2:2. First John 22. as soon
0: as this is web page starts again. So this is one of my, one of my part of one of my favorite sections when talking to sinless perfectionists. Uh, Because in the previous chapter, uh, we have what's said there about, we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, however, God is faithful and just, he forgives us. Then with uh, chapter 2, he says, uh, to quote, as soon as this webpage loads back, um, children of me, these things I am writing to you in order that uh, you may not sin. Uh, and if anyone should sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Uh, verse two, expanding, saying, and he is the propitiation for the sins of us, the not only for uh, not only for the sins of ours uh, only, but also for the sins, but also for Hollow to Cosmo all
1: the world. Sorry about that, Theophilus. Um, probably just got a big sound on the mic because I was drinking some water. <laughs> I didn't do anything here, so... <laughs> oh, I have no suppression on, on Discord, but I can't no suppress uh, things on uh, OBS, so... <laughs> nah. Um, yeah, so... Um the arminian would say see jesus doesn't just die for the believer but also for the sins of everyone in existence he says that he is the propitiation not just for believers but for the whole world meaning everyone um i have a few questions unless jedi you want to step in and maybe answer that first a little bit i i I think that you should step in and try to answer a little bit first
0: yeah, my, my problem with this is is it comes back to the notion of I believe in a salvation that saves, a reconciliation that reconciles, a propitiation here, a propitiation that propitiates, a halasmos. If you look into what the lexical sources have to say about this word, this word, it's in reference to the notion of like, of an angry God in atoning sacrifice, an atonement. If Christ has made if christ has paid for all the sin of the world then there's no sin left to be punished because it was all punished in christ upon the cross so if if this if all means all and that's all all means in this passage then either god is committing double jeopardy in reaccusing the the sinner of his sin or we must take unitarianism because
1: all the world has had its its sin forgiven that's just a perfect way of uh, putting it double jeopardy is such a interesting um objection arminianism and i think once again um if i can definitely recommend a book uh a death of death and the death of christ by um john owen he kind of covers that exact thing and he argues it would have to be double jeopardy um for the arminian and you know I myself, as John Owen did, I have a few questions for the Arminian, too. Um, What is a helasmos? What is a propitiation? Um, It's a good question to ask ourselves, and it's pretty basic to answer. Um, In English, propitiation means the act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone or something, the act of propitiating, appeasement. Uh, Something that propitiates or appeases, specifically an atoning sacrifice. So it's an act that regains the goodwill. That's just another way of saying friendly relations or relationships between two parties. Um, A helosmos, a propitiation of an angry God, as one lexicon would put it, Um, that means that it's an act that regains friendly relationship between God and man and appeases God's anger. It's the propitiation of an angry God. It's the restoring of good relations and the blotting out of sin. And it only has three uses in the New Testament, and it means the same thing all three times. So unless they want to say that God has regained friendly relationship, it actually says that he propitiates, not that he makes propitiation possible. Propitiation is an act that regains friendly relationship between God and man and appeases God's anger. There's only one meaning of that word, there's not multiple meanings. But that's not the same case with cosmos, and I've already demonstrated that. Let's, here's my second question for the Armenian. What is meant by cosmos here? What, what does cosmos mean here? and the arminian would have to say all of humanity but let's run with this meaning of the text if world means all of humanity and propitiation means an appeasement of divine wrath and anger that restores friendly relations then this verse is saying that jesus has satisfied or appeased divine wrath for all of humanity and has restored friendly relations but the unavoidable logical conclusion of this interpretation of the verse is universal salvation this however would be to contradict the lord's teachings about the eternal condemnation of the wicked in hell and Helosmos propitiation, only has one meaning throughout scripture, while cosmos has many meanings throughout scripture. Cosmos does not always mean everyone in existence, there are many uses of this word in John and the rest of the New Testament, and as I've already demonstrated, you need to go back, if, if you're just cutting in and out, trying to get like a, a one reading of the passage, and that's it, and you just want to be able to debunk Calvinists. This, this doesn't work, okay? That's not how you go through anyone's work, honestly, or see what we're trying to say. Go back to what I said about John 3.16, about the use of cosmos, and the varying examples that I gave, going detailed into the passages and showing, look, if you're consistent, and world always means everyone in all of existence, then you have to be a universalist, even in this instance. Because God does not restore a friendly relationship and appease the divine wrath of everyone, otherwise everyone would have to be saved john was the apostle to the jews and he wrote to the jews this can be seen here's another interpretation john was the apostle to the jews and wrote to the jews this is clearly seen in paul's letters um you can kind of see it talks about john and it says um in galatians 2 7 through 9 on the contrary when they saw that i had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised quote uh parentheses for he who worked through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, in parentheses. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Notice here, John is going to the circumcised. So I would say in First John 2-2, John is combating the idea that Christ only died for the Jews because he's writing to Jews. And instead he says... In um, First John 2 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Remember, he is writing, he is the Jewish apostle. He's the one who's the apostle to the circumcised, as Paul makes pretty explicit. First um, John 2 2 is combating the idea that Christ only died for the Jews. And he says he is the propitiation for our sins, talking about the Jews, and not for ours only, also talking about the Jews, but also for the whole world. So not just the Jews, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, meaning the elect of all nations of the world, and not for ours only, meaning he did not die for the Jews only. It's that simple. We don't need to make universalism. We don't need to propose something like universalism. If we just take the text that it's meaning and we don't try to manipulate it, then it can be clearly seen. First John 2.2 2 is not in reference, that everyone in existence has been propitiated for it. Otherwise, there's nothing. And I mean nothing. There's no reason for God to condemn. There would be no sin for God to condemn for. No reason to send anyone to hell. No payment to be made. God would have restored friendly relations with everyone, appeasing the divine wrath for everyone. And if that's the case, it's not just potential. It's an actual hirasmas. It's, it's an actual propitiation that regains friendly favor, legally. And if he... Re- regains friendly favor for everyone we have to be universalists so i, I that's that's my stance on first john 2 too and i think jedi in the short amount of words that he did I, i'm always more long-winded but he kind of put it perfectly as to why it can't possibly be that because otherwise god is sending people for, to hell for that which is already paid for and we know that's double jeopardy um I think we've dealt with First John 2-2 enough. Um, let's go to a one that's going to be another long-winded passage. How about we uh, make our way over to First Timothy 2-4? Unless you want to go to First Timothy four ten first, first, but that would be out of order. Let's just go to First Timothy uh, 2-4. Try to be ordinate, yes.
0: Timothy 2-4. There's loads up here. Haspantas anthropos de lesons... So, uh, who all men desires to be saved, qui ait Epignosum alethes and to the knowledge of truth to come. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: Can you read uh, uh, in English? The wider context. Yeah. No, well, in in English, just First Timothy two one through seven, really. Right. I exhort.
0: Um I exhort therefore uh first of all uh to be made oh boy, let me just grab my NASB. Is the Greek grammar Greek grammar doesn't always come over into English very nice guys. <laughs> uh anyone who unfortunately tried listening to my Hebrew series understands that. Uh <laughs> Wait, where's... Oh, there's chapter two. Okay. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth
1: or did, did you want me to read on from there yeah just five through um, seven five through seven okay for what for
0: there is one God uh, yep yeah, there's one God and one mediator therefore also between God and men the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time Uh, check the Greek book. it at the proper time? Yeah, okay. Um, yep, seven. Uh, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. As a teacher of the
1: Gentiles, in faith and truth. Yep. So so that's just uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. I'm glad that you uh, read all of it, but basically the Arminian, or the provisionist objection, or whatever name you want to throw on them, or what label... Um, the Catholics even. Um how could God hate the reprobate and only choose some people to salvation if first Timothy two four says God quote desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And um as with any passage, we need to analyze and look at the context to see what exactly is being talked about and how, because what appears on surface level to be true might not be true on a deeper examination so they the underlying assumption to the arminian argument or this this would have to be true um in order for the arminian or the provisionist or the whatever you call it um who you call it doesn't matter whoever would be making this argument would have to say that all people all men um which is probably um This is probably the underlying assumption, if you're talking to an Arminian who's thinking this, or even if you are an Arminian who's watching this, that all men refers to all men indiscriminately in existence. Um, The first appearance of the phrase all men is at the end of verse 1, and its meaning is clear. Um, Paul is not instructing Timothy to open Ephesus' phone book and engage in never... Would it be Ephesus or Ephesus's? Anyway, Paul is not instructing Timothy to open Ephesus' phone book and engage in never-ending prayer meetings where every single person in Ephesus would be mentioned and prayed for. Um, He makes it pretty clear who he's talking about when he says all men um, in the first sentence. He says, um, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions be made for all people. Okay, well, who are these all men that's being talked about? Um... Well, he says, for kings, for Bethsaidaon, and all who are in high positions. Uh, Paul is giving the early Christians who were under heavy persecution commands to still pray for those same ones in authority who were oppressing them. There were the same authorities trying to get you to bow the knee to Caesar. Um, If this letter was written at the end of Paul's life, um, which is actually possible, it seems that if it is the case that this was written at the end of Paul's life, he likely would have been in jail at this point under Caesar's authority. And um, Paul might even be encouraging them to pray for the same ones who are putting him in jail. But the point is, that the clarification of all people is given by Paul himself when he specifies what he means by all men slash people. Um, when he says to, quote, kings and all who are in high positions. These are types or classes of men. It's a string of genitives that moder- they modify anthropon um, and its meaning. Uh, Kings and those who are in high positions are categories of men, not men, not specific men themselves. Obviously, that refers to men in those categories, but the the emphasis is on the types of men. Um, Paul is encouraging prayer for all types of men. If he meant all men head for head, he wouldn't have to mention Besaraon and those who are in high authorities. He wouldn't have to mention those kings and all who are in high positions. They would have already been praying to them if all men meant everyone indiscriminately in existence, but Paul instead is trying to say, and this is why he doesn't have to name it twice, when he says all men, he means all types of men. Now we know that, and Paul clearly clarifies what he means when he says besalehon, and all who are in high positions. That's for kings and all who are in high positions, those are types of men. Um, Paul then goes on to state that these prayers are good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior... Who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth i don't think paul suddenly changes meaning between two verses when he's talking about all men if paul meant types of men by all men in verse 1 it means the same thing when he talks about god's desire that all men or people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth he means god desires to save someone who is persecuting the church of god which paul knows about intimately as much as he desires the salvation of the citizens who are not persecuting christians god desires the salvation of all types of men and as paul rightly states in his next letter to timothy um and to timothy 2:24 to 26 he says and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil 25 correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their sentence and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will Paul knows very well that a servant of the Lord must be kind, patient, and willing to pray for all men in the hopes that God may grant them repentance. Here, notice, God is the one granting to, to repentance. That actually is the thing that leads to knowledge of the truth. Um, I would have to check back, but I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, probably it's the case that the, the Greek word there, used, is in reference um, he 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 may perhaps grant them repentance for the acknowledgment of the truth, true knowledge, and um. And then you know Paul, uh, I I would even say we can clearly see this as talking about all types of men, so the Arminian objection just goes away. Um, but even then, verse five seems to destroy any hope for the Arminian interpretation of this text, for it connects God's desire for the salvation of all men and their coming to the truth, true knowledge. ...to the idea of Jesus being the mediator between God and men. Uh, Paul enjoy, employs the conjunction gar, which means that he is building off of the previous statement. And he says explicitly in 2 Timothy 2, 3-6, "...this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between a man, sorry between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time." Given at the proper time, sorry. And what you'll notice is, if you if you maybe read, um, if you maybe read the latest edition of Nestle Alon, uh, they will actually put it in a, sort of like a, a as if it's a poetic or creedal statement that is happening between verses five and verses six. So this is actually an early creedal statement, maybe a hymn, um, something like that that Paul is mentioning in verse 5 and 6. And this is an actual creed in 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Um, Obviously, this is an early cruel statement from verses 5 to 6. You can see that if you're reading the Nestle Elan. Um, If all men means all men in existence, is Christ given as a ransom to mediate between God and man for all men in existence? Is his ransom for these men mediating between man and God, even for the unbeliever? If so, then the logical implication is that Jesus is interceding on behalf of the unbeliever and paying his debt actively and standing between the unbeliever and God. Because here, he connects the fact that God desires all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth of his mediation. He he connects us to the mediation between God and men, And he, he mentions once again that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, if all, in this sense, doesn't mean types of men, but rather all men indiscriminately, this would mean that Christ gave himself as an entelotron, that's a ransom, a ransom for all, and he is mediating between God and man sacrificially, in which sense that would imply universalism. That means that, one, you know, there's no reason to think that this refers to all men head for head, Um, but if it did, then it would lose universalism thus all men cannot be in reference to all men in existence, but rather all types of men. And this is Paul's entire point. That's the entire point.
0: Not, not to mention, not to mention in verse 4, it doesn't say desire. Well, it's translated desire, but anyone looking at an interlinear sees the word there as thele. It says will. And that's We've what done. Yeah, I've talked a lot about thele on this podcast. When we've walked through text, when we've talked about the will of God, the thele, the thematitos, the um, lematos, <laughs> the When it's of God, it's a thing that He wills that is definitively accomplished.
1: Yeah, none can stay his hand or ask what dostel, as Daniel say, uh, Sorry, as Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel. Once again, yeah, folks, so at, Daniel 4, 34-35. I recommend that text. It's a, it's a great yeah. text to look at.
0: So it stands to reason based on consistent application of the word thele in relation to God, that if God phele all men to be saved, that all men would be phele. But that's if all means all, and that's all all means. If this is in the context of the elect of God, then for God to fail, that all men will be saved, that all of the elect shall be saved, that's, that's just what Scripture says, that God will definitively bring about the salvation of his chosen people.
1: Amen. Um, the next passage that I wanted to look at, and um, to be fair, we're, we're one hour and 11 minutes in. Uh, I'm thinking we should go for maybe—how how long do you think is your longest podcast, really?
0: Uh Like two hours and something
1: <laughs> okay cool let's so. let's work this towards two hours and see if we can get everything done if not hey there's always a possibility for a part two certainly certainly yeah. um next, I wanted to look at um uh, one that you're going to expect and and this is probably one of those uh, as John three sixteen and first John two two was this is one of the most commonly used ones that you can expect when talking to an Armenian or say a provisionist or whatever you want to call them. Um it's two Peter three eight and nine. And that's that's the next one oh, you, to take a look at. Unless you didn't you... put you didn't put that in my lineup. You didn't put that in the DM oh, lineup. I didn't. Okay, actually here here's the deal. I have a better idea then. Um No no, no no let's do it. Let's let's do it. I just wasn't expecting it. I
0: All can right. pull it up real
1: quick. Okay, quickly just so you know the next one we're gonna do is first Timothy four ten then.
0: Second Peter what what?
1: Second I Peter three and nine. Three,
0: three, nine. I know this see, Theophilus, I'm a faces person. I know a lot of verses, their addresses, that's another story.
1: Um, <laughs> this is um he's not willing that uh he's patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right. So. Or
0: as the common misparaphrase they simply skip to the sec to the, the second
1: and third well technically it'd be the well, okay. I was gonna make <laughs> that, it that any should but perish, and, more but that all should reach repentance. Yeah, I get it. Uh, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That kind of a thing. Um, so to, to give
0: the to give the full verse, um, the previous context. This is talking about. Well, they're saying that they're they're saying that the Lord is so long in coming, and He's saying, "Hold on, hold on. A day is, is a thousand years with the Lord, and a thousand years is as a day." And He says, "But it says in verse nine, but." The Lord does not delay the promise as, as some count slowness. Allah um, matrofime, but is patient, ice hemast, toward you. Me bolomenos inas apalestai, not willing for any to perish. Allah pantas ice metanoian but all to repentance come so let's 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 look
1: at what is being what is being said well, here hold up slow down let's quickly let's say what the Armenian would say about this let's let's present the objection first and then you can quickly hop back on that the Armenian would say, how could God hate people and want to condemn some to hell for his glory and purpose if second peter three nine says God is not willing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance um it's it's not any in the sense you're trying to say exactly and the presupposition there is that when it's referring to any and all this is any of creation any of humans but that all humans should come to repentance but the truth is as you're i'm going to let you get back to um the text isn't referencing that and i recommend that quickly um just get back to it and then i'm going to give more of the context after.
0: Yeah. It's like I started saying, it's, it says, but is patient towards you. So here's the start of the category. God is patient towards you or towards us, the elect, not willing that any should perish. So this any is within the category of us, the elect, but all come to repentance. This all is within the category of any, which is within the category of you or us, the elect. Exactly. So it's not talking of, it's not talking about just anyone. It's
1: talking about the specific category. It's not just that either. So there's also a textual variant here. So, so, So you're right. It's talking about a specific category, but there's even a more specific textual variant, which would actually side more with the KJV on this one. Um, depending, I think it just makes sense either way, but, um, the way, for example, the KJV would put it is that he is patient towards us word talking about he's patient on, you know, if you, for example, look on the footnotes of the ESV, some manuscripts say, on your account. He's patient on your account. Sorry, uh, like us word basically. He's patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the idea is it's us, the believers. Um just for a little bit of context because i didn't expect this to go so fast but um 2 peter 3 the, the topic being addressed is um basically paul's mentioning scoffers that will come in the last days with scoffing following their sinful desires in verse 2 um they will say what is the promise of his coming forever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of all creation verse 4 uh paul then says that they are missing the fact that even when even the flood came unexpected uh, and the earth was then deluged with water and perished. That's verses 5 and 6. Paul states um, that by that same word of God that created the earth, the heavens and earth are now that now exist are being stored up for fire, being kept um, until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he's saying, look, God's word, just as it was stored up then, and the flood came unexpected, still will be the judgment. And then he says, um, he encourages the beloved, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with wait, let's let's just take a quick second. Who was just mentioned there? Do not overlook this one fact too. Beloved. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Oh, first crack. But that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the, and the then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Paul is giving the reason in verse 9 for his not coming yet. God is not slow to fulfill his promise, as the scoffers think, but is patient towards the beloved, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, there's something to point out here. First, any is a pronoun. Um... Meaning, it is a word that replaces a noun. Um, some examples of some common pronouns are he, she, they, y'all, you all, you, etc. And any falls into this category. Um, we we must find what's called the antecedent, or in other words, the people who are being referred to when Paul says any. This will refers who the all sorry. This will refers to who the any or the all are. Um, why we need to find out who the any are is for this reason. Um, Jedi, if I come up to you and I say, did you get any, uh, what would you say? Any of what? Yeah, you'd look at me crazy and probably say, any of what, and also, why are you here? No, but um... um... This is because any is a pronoun referring to a noun, so we must find out who the any of 2 Peter 3 9 is. Let's examine the text again and look for the antecedents. Um, 2 Peter 3, 8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Okay, we have a noun there. Um, actually an adjective, but this is used in place of a noun, so it's fine. It's the beloved of God. Those who have the adjective of being beloved of God. So that's a, that's a nominative, that's a group. Um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Okay, this is our second candidate for who the antecedent is. Could it be the scoffers, as some who count slowness? This is what, you know, um... A close friend of mine tried to suggest, um, as an Arminian, that, oh no, uh, the antecedent to any is actually some, Um, and that the next candidate, but is, uh, sorry, let me reread verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some, Count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So they would say, look, here the sum is referring, the the you is referring to some, and here this is referring to the scoffers. And God's not willing that any uh, of the scoffers should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But we can look at the text backwards and see if if we can find the antecedent. Um, The next pronoun before any is you. Uh, This means that any is who he is talking about here. But we have another problem. Uh, You is also a pronoun. Um, It replaces a noun. This means we must look further back. Some may suggest that the sum is who Paul is talking to here. The problem is this is not how grammar works. Um, If I am talking to a group of people, I use a second-person pronoun. That's what you is. I'm addressing someone when I say you. So, um, you, Jedi, what are you thinking right now? Am I talking to someone or talking about someone? Oh, your Discord chat. Oh, yeah, so what I said was... um, I said, um, the next pronoun before any is you, this means that any is who he is talking to, but we basically have a problem that you is also a pronoun, and we have to look further back. And some Armenians may suggest that the sum is who Paul is talking to here. The problem is this is not how, like, g- grammar works, just in English or Greek or anything. If I'm talking to right. a group of people, I use a second person pronoun, but the problem is some is in the third person in the Greek, meaning t- Paul is not talking about them. I'm sorry, talk, Paul is talking about them, not to them. Um, for example, I said, um, you Jedi, what are you thinking right now? As as an example of a second-person pronoun. I was talking to mm-hmm. you, not about you, right? Right. And here, throughout the entire passage, um, we have these people who are the scoffers being referred to in third-person pronouns. In verse 4, it says, they will say... Um, I'm just... Um, they will say uh then it has uh out it's they right for they deliberately overlooked this fact the scoffers is in the third person so he's talking about them not to them right and this is all throughout the passage even when you get to some he's still referring to them in the third person the the person who would promote some being the antecedent would have to say that in the same sentence paul refers to someone in the third person uh all throughout the passage comes to this sentence, still refers to them in the third person, and randomly starts talking about them in the second person to them. That doesn't work. This is solidified because this group... Uh, I'm sorry. The the next candidate for the antecedent, because it can't be some, is the beloved. Um, and this fits the Greek case per, uh, perfectly, as it is in the vocative case, meaning they are being personally addressed. Basically, that's a fancy way of saying this is the case of second person. Um, it's a vocative. It falls into the second person. This is solidified because this group is being told a command, it's it's an imperative, right, uh, in, in grammar, in Greek. Um, they're being told a command, and uh, this command is to not overlook this one fact, he's talking to someone, and then by the time he gets to you, remember he's talking to the beloved and he's talking to them in the second person, he gives them an imperative, which is a fancy word for command in the Greek language, um, in grammar, and... Um, the idea is by the time he gets to that next verse, he's still talking to those people because he, he, he's talking in the vocative case again, which means he's talking to someone. Um, this is solidified because this group is being told to command, the imperative form in grammar in verse 8, and this means that this fits our pronoun you, which is in the second person. This means that God is not willing that any of the beloved should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This means that the text is referring to how God is waiting for his elect children to come to repentance before he comes back, and those on earth already, those to come later, and to be born. Um, He is waiting for all his elect to reach repentance and is not willing that any of them should perish. That's the antecedent. So, it's not saying, like, any of who. It's any of the beloved. It's talking about the elect. It's talking about the believers. That's the point, He's not willing any of it, his elect should perish. He's how how great is this that God is not going to leave behind any of his elect people? How great is that? Yeah,
0: and it's just it, this passage is just very clear if you just genuinely read it and acknowledge English grammatical function. That's like it just it just, you don't even need to say well the Greek grammar. It's like just the English translation has the same grammatical significance. Patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. It's the, the, the category
1: is still you, whether you're saying hamas or you in English. Yeah, uh, exactly. And here's another thing. You mentioned the fact that, you know, you go into Greek grammar a lot on the podcast about Thales and thalematos and all of these things. We have another instance of a word talking about God's will. Boleme. This is actually, this is someone, well, Bulemenos in this, um, sorry, Bulemenos. Um, but the idea is God is not willing that any should perish. God doesn't will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Huh. That's exactly what we said in the last passage. If he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, then there, there they go. Um, if that means everyone, then no one's going to perish, and once again, we're universalists, but that's not the scriptural testimony. Or God's will can be thwarted, which is heretical. Yep. Um, which puts the Arminian in a dilemma. But, yeah. So, I think we've covered this passage. What are we running on time? We've got about 35 minutes um, that we can really go. Let's cover First Timothy 4.10. Let me quickly go there um first timothy uh 410 says for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living god who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe and um i'll just read the the entirety of this passage uh because i'm gonna have to Um, if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of christ jesus Being trained on the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irrelevant silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for this, to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the elders laid their hands on you practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers okay so here um, this is quite an interesting passage um, I find it That Owen gives a perfect response to it. Uh, He has some great words on pretty much everything. And, um, hold up. I'm gonna type this in quickly. Just give me a sec. Is it ever gonna let me do this? Well, that's annoying. One year. Hold up, I'm having some technical difficulties, never mind, I figured it out, and we're back to normal. Okay, um, so, so John Owen, once again, he, I feel like I'm just an advertisement for John Owen, um, he actually covers this exact passage, um, he says, um, let's see, Also, 1 Timothy 4.10, we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, specifically of those who believe. Though, in this last place, it is not ascribed to him with reference to redeeming us by Christ. Instead, it is ascribed to him by saving and preserving us by his providence. See also Titus 2.10, 3.4, Deuteronomy 32.15, 1 Samuel uh, 10.19, Psalm 24.5, 25.5, Isaiah 12.2, 40.10, 45.15, Jeremiah 14.8, Micah 7.7, and Habakkuk. Habakkuk. No, I'm kidding. Uh, 318. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Yeah. Most of these, uh, places refer to his sending Christ. Um, uh, anyway. I, was that the right, that was the wrong. I read all of that for no reason. I'm very what? disappointed right now. I was in the wrong chapter. And he was dealing with the same passage. Oh. Oh, okay. Um, let me just read it again, but this time I'll read the right thing. Let us look at another proof. Perhaps it will strengthen the uncount distinction we oppose. It is 1 Timothy 4.10, who quote, who is the Savior of all men, especially, sorry, especially of those who believe. Had it been who is the mediator of all men, especially of those who believe, it would have been more likely. What are these men thinking? Is there any word here spoken of Christ as mediator? The words preceding the phrase indicate that this is the living God in whom we trust. He is the Savior mentioned here. And has Christ ever called our Savior with regard to his mediation? I showed before that God, the Father, is often called Savior. And it is the Father who is intended here, as all sound interpreters agree. This is clear from the context, which speaks of the protecting providence of God. It is general towards all, and specific, sorry, in special or specific towards His Church. Th- thus, He is said to save man and beast (Psalm 36:6). The Hebrew for "save," yasha, is rendered "soter" uh, in the Greek. Uh, you shall save or preserve. It is God, then, who is called the Savior of all men here. He is the Savior by his deliverance and protection and danger, which is his providence. This providence is specific towards believers, what Prusus offers... Uh, for univer- Sorry, what proof this offers for universal mediation, I do not know. The context of this passage will not allow any other interpretation. The words offer a reason why believers should cheerfully go forward, running the race that is set before them with joy, despite all the injury and reproach with which the people of God are continually assaulted. It is because God preserves all for, quote, In him we live and move and have our being, end quote. Acts 17:28 psalm 145 14 through 16. he will not allow any of them to be injured or unrevenged genesis 9 5 and so he is especially the preserver of those who believe. For they are the apple of his eyes, Zechariah 2.8, Deuteronomy 32.10. If he allows them to be pressed for a season, the apostle encourages them not to let go of their hope and confidence, nor be wary of well-doing, but still rest on and trust in him. What motive would he have to tell believers that God would save those who would never believe? To say nothing of how strange it would seem to have Christ be the Savior of those who were never saved, to whom he never gives grace to believe, for whom he refuses to intercede, John 17.9. Yet this intercession is no small part of his mediation by which he saves sinners. Neither the subject nor the context of the phrase he is the savior of all men is rightly apprehended by those who twist it in support of universal redemption. For the subject He is God the Father, not Christ the mediator, and the context is a providential preservation, not a purchased salvation. That is the providence of God, sorry, that is the providence of God protects and governs all. But God is watching in a special way for the good of those who are His. Um, so that they will not always be unjustly and cruelly slandered and reviled among other pressures. The Apostle also shows that it was God's course to do so. 2 Corinthians 1, 9, 10. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. For, quote, he is the Savior of all men, specially of those who believe, Paul ref- uh, reveals the basis for his confidence in going through his labors and afflictions in these words,, quote, "Because we have sorry, because we hope in the living God." One Timothy 4, 10. If anyone thinks instead that these words express the sum of the doctrine for which he was so tormented and afflicted, I will not oppose it. For then it would only be an assertion of the true God and Paul's dependence on him. And this dependence is in opposition to all the idols of the Gentiles and any other vain conceits by which they insulted themselves and to the thrones of the Most High. But instead they are saying, one, that Christ would be a savior of those who will never be saved from their sins in the same way that he saves his people. Matthew one twenty one, or two, that he is a savior of those who have never heard a word about saving or about a savior, or three, that he would be a savior in a two senses, first, for all, then secondly, for believers, or that believing, or sorry, or for, that believing is the condition by which Christ becomes a savior in a special way, or someone, and that condition was not procured or purchased by Christ. If that is the sense of this passage, then I will say, credit judias apela. To me, nothing is more certain than that Christ completely saves those to whom he is, in any sense, a savior in the work of redemption. He saves them from their sins of infidelity and disobedience with saving grace here and glory thereafter. So here, um, sorry for that long quote from Owen, but he demonstrates it way better than I do. Here, savior, soter, is in reference not to God being the soteriological savior of all people in the sense he died for all, but rather that he is the providential preserver of all people, as is another definition of soter. This is another way that soter is used. Um, I've, I've already read verse 16 for everyone. Keep a close watch on yourself and on teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Are they going to save themselves? Are the people who are the Armenians willing to say that people are saving themselves by following Paul's commands? Is that what's meant? If If it's soteriological, what is the case of that? What does that mean? Does that mean workspace salvation? Of course not, because it's saying you will preserve yourselves, both yourselves and your hearers, if you keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. We're not saved by teaching, and neither is the hearers. That is not how God's salvation works. We're not works plus faith salvation. Paul universally condemns this. There is God is the preserver of all people, especially of those who believe, meaning he's, he's the preserver of all people, but in a special way towards the believing ones. He preserves them to eternity. And the arminians wish to rip this passage and say god he is the savior of all men even to people whom will never have the merits of the atonement applied to them and some who will never ever hear of christ or his salvation and you're saying arminians would have to say he is the savior of people whom he would never save of whom he never saved and never a salvation saved that doesn't say you
0: know, salvation that doesn't save a reconciliation that does not reconcile
1: a propitiation that doesn't propitiate that's the, the you have to butcher scripture for this. Now we have about um, twenty four minutes left. Um, Going to give you the go ahead on this. Would you rather go to Corinthians five fourteen through nineteen or one Corinthians fifteen twenty two? Um, I, I think I
0: think we accomplished quite a bit today. Um, maybe. We could address those a different time or something
1: yeah sounds good uh, um Theophilus, i hope this will be helpful to you and um as again i said earlier um talking about this exact topic i think it really provides some problems to you if you would say that christ buys the fruits of the sacrifice for everyone if its true intention is saving and he doesn't accomplish it um as john owen says therefore by the lord's assistance i will declare what the scripture holds out related to both the assertion they make and what they present to prove it i desire the lord to leave us into all truth by his spirit to give us understanding in all things and if anyone thinks otherwise to reveal that to to him also the death of christ is so important and it's essential to how we view the world and how we view everything in it we don't believe we have an unsuccessful god god's genuine intention is to save and he does Whatever he pleases, on the heavens and on the earth. And he thwarts the plans of men and the counsels of men, as the Psalms say. Theophilus, I hope that you learned a lot from this. Um, Sorry to Stephen for basically taking over the entire thing, but I find it will be helpful to everyone.
0: (laughs) That was very
1: beneficial. At least I
0: hope. Reformed Apologist asks, Who are some of your favorite theologians? Um... I'm I'm really fond of um, Paul, the apostle, and John, the apostle. Um, Can't miss John, um, right? Hebrews, he he, the author of Hebrews, who I believe was Paul. Um, Hebrews is a theological roast beef. It's it's an immaculate text. Uh, great great theology, a great read. I think it's. Fundamental alongside Romans to understanding the new covenant, the covenant we have with God through the blood of Christ. Um, after that, we have such great deposits in the faith. Um, uh, we have the Saint Augustine from whom we get great theologians such as John Calvin, uh, Martin Luther. If you don't know, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. Um, and you know Luther the author of the bondage of the will um, of, of many works um, I in my particular realm I owe a fair amount uh, to Spurgeon one of the great um, reformed Baptists of the last few centuries um, I owe a lot very directly to modern-day, um, studiers and pontificators, such as, uh, James White, um, R.C. Sproul,
1: um, yeah. Yeah, well, um, since apparently I'm an advertisement for, uh, John Owen today, I would have to say, um, <laughs> John Owen, um, James White's pretty good. Where, where can we buy the t-shirt? Where's the John Owen t-shirt? I don't know, I'll have to make one. Um, <laughs> You want to be you want to be my funder. You can you can take some uh shares in our stocks that will develop no, but um yeah. All right. All right. Uh,
0: Nicholas and there's a there's two more questions technically I literally. Uh, asked there's one. Nicholas
1: Huh? I so said I apparently asked one. You did. You did. We'll get uh, to Nicholas
0: it. Papagori yeah, Nicholas Papa Giorgio uh, asks, uh, "What are some overrated and underrated theological positions?" Um, overrated, um, um, <laughs> uh, Molinism. <laughs> really, it's it's really uh, when you think about it critically, it's not not really biblical. Um, Armenianism. Well, of course, of course, it doesn't have to be in Scripture. It just has to be logically consistent with Scripture. You're um, using a
1: method of truth-making maximalism.
0: <laughs> right. And the problem with, with Craig's position there is the simple uh, theological position, non s non-biblicum, non-es theologicum. If it isn't in the Bible, it isn't theology. The, all, all theology is based upon testimony of scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the, the doctrines of grace. We base our beliefs not upon our own pontifications wrought in a vacuum, but by thinking critically about what saith the word of God. If God says jump, we don't say, well, no, I don't know where I was going with that.
1: Um, but if God say, if God uh if God says jump then we jump and if He doesn't right. then we don't
0: <laughs> we guess. don't
1: pontificate we we don't pontificate uh
0: if I don't know I
1: don't know we don't pontificate um... what Stephen means when we don't know <laughs>
0: right yeah oh. um for underrated uh Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hi Calvinist.
1: No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's overrated. I'm afraid. Oh, um, <laughs> for some context here, um, hi Calvinist here, Stephen. Not hi Calvinist. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny. He uh, I I joined this podcast one week and then the next week he uh tells me how bad I am at theology. No, I'm kidding.
0: Oh, no. Oh, no. Actually, it's the other way around. I already talked about your position. Oh, I know. I, I'm aware.
1: <laughs>
0: and, uh, yeah, I'm I'm waiting for you to give the rebuttal for that. <laughs> Alright. Some other time fast. Um, Let's do it right now. No, I'm kidding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, Agent C, myself, matter of fact, says, What are some arguments for limited atonement? I, I did that to foreshadow um, the fact that you know, the one that I made today about God's purpose. Um, Right. Do you have any that you like? Yeah, I like because it's a
0: progressional argument. Jesus says, this is why my father loves me, that I lay down my life for for my sheep. He says his sheep. (laughs) It's a clear category throughout the Gospels that Jesus has this group referred to as the sheep. When they go astray, he seeks them out. Um, John, John 6 and other places in John this clear talking about whom the Father draws will come to Christ and Christ will not cast them out um, that uh, of all the Father gives him he loses not so there's this group who is drawn by the Father and that word there for drawn in the Greek that's the same word you could use for drawing a sword from a sheep I've drawn many a sword the sword does not refuse to be drawn. Um, it doesn't resist. I, there's an irresistible unsheathing taking place.
1: I'll tell you, um, he, he has to resist stabbing me whenever I preach high Calvinism. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I pray continuously for your salvation. Yes. No. Yeah. no. <laughs> this is, that's, this is that's, that's what he told me whenever I became a Calvinist. <laughs>
0: No, I think you're confusing me for a different guy from Discord. No, 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 uh, no, no, no,
1: no, that's true. No, but what you did say was um, the angels <laughs> in heaven rejoiced at his salvation." <laughs> making fun of <laughs> my friend. Anyway, uh, uh, man, that was a funny day. Also a depressing day. Anyway, long story. Um, <clears throat> well, if there's anything left to say, now's your time to say it what can i say except uh, thank you for coming on yeah man you're welcome anytime um just not on days that i have school anyway (laughs) Uh, anytime except for when it's not the time